chapter 13. First Corinthians chapter 13. Just a disclosure. Our disclaimer. I did not prepare this sermon because Valentine's Day is coming up. Just just laying it out there. We're not talking about love because it's the season for love. It's just providence. Where the Lord had us since the beginning of this year, and then the next two weeks, or this past two weeks, last week and this week, um, before we start studying Philippians in two weeks' time, I, as, as I was thinking through what God has been teaching us, uh, we, we spoke about being doers last week and not just hearers of God's word. And the next natural progression of that is what should motivate our, 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 our us being doers, our obedience. What should motivate it? And the answer was love. So I said, okay, let's, let's talk about love. On this Sunday, it just so happens to be like the Valentine's Day season. So it's just providence. So I'm not being trendy. I have not gone off the reservation yet. Um, but this is also providence. So building on what the Lord is teaching us in this season that we are justified, that we are reconciled, that we are adopted, that we are sanctified. And then he commands us to actually practice his work, be doers, right? If you are justified, reconciled, adopted, and sanctified, then go out and do and work out your adoption, work out your reconciliation, work out your sanctification, and work out your justification. That's what he commanded us last week. And his word to make every effort to live like you are justified, make every effort to live like you are reconciled, to make every effort to live like you are adopted and to make every effort to live like you're being sanctified. But what drives you to make that effort? What is the driving force that compels you to be a doer and not just a hearer? What is it? What is the motivation underneath that? What is the heart of your, for Christian living? What, what is your heart to live the Christian life? If your life was a train, what is the single most important characteristic that serves as the engine of that train. What is it? And the virtue in our text before us will be and is that engine, that engine for that train. So let's look at God's word together in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first three verses. As Paul writes... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have 
prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's pray. God, here we are again to ask you for grace and mercy, to be merciful to our sinful souls and minds who are easily distracted by the things that are in this world, to not hear what your word says to us. So be gracious to us and open our eyes and our ears and our minds to receive your word with gladness and joy and be fruitful as it transforms us by the power of your spirit. We ask you for Jesus' sake. Amen. In his book called um, well, I, I want to call it love, but it's called Charity and Its Fruits. One of the greatest, if not the greatest theologian in American history, Jonathan Edwards, writes this. The most excellent things that ever belong to the natural man, that includes most excellent privileges and the most excellent performances, if we have them all and not have charity, we are nothing. And he adds on and says, all the virtue that is saving and that distinguishes true Christians from others is summed up in Christian love. I'll read that quote because I started by saying, what exactly drives your train? What motivates you? And if you have not picked up the theme, just in case, throughout our whole service, it's love. The answer is love. Just in case you haven't picked up on the hint. Uh, we, we, we've been dropping hints since the beginning of our service together. So if you, I know we are being super subtle with it too. But it's love. That's the driving force that leads us. And this is what our text before us lays out for us. But before we look at the, the text, I want us to consider the immediate context. If you look down with me, not to chapter 13, verse 1, but look a little, a couple of verses before, really one verse before that, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. Paul is talking about earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still more, a, a still a more excellent way. So the immediate context leading up to what, what we just read in chapter 13, verse 1, is Paul is talking about what, what we call as the charismatic gifts. That most churches were, were pitting against each other, really. Now this church was pitting it against each other. Look, look, look down to verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, and helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. These are the gifts that he's talking about, and the church is, is fighting over them. 
And then he says, are, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So he's talking about this charismatic gifts. Now, if I were in here and I started prophesying in your life, right, then we know, we know what that is. Like if we've been around in, in, in our current churches, and most of, some of you actually would, would be so glad to know what God would do in two years. Oh, God wants me to, to, to graduate from, uh, from school and make, we desire those things. And we, if a prophet came, we would flock to that place. Gift of healing. Oh, we want to be healed. Gift of tongues, those, those charismatic gifts that, that the church in the Corinth was really pitting against each other. Paul says, there's that, but I'll show you even a more excellent thing than that. Desire those things. Those things aren't inherently evil. But Paul's intention here is to show the Corinthian church a more excellent way by which... They can be sanctified, by which they can live under. And the larger context of the whole Corinthian letters, so really the two letters that Paul writes to, to the church in Corinth. See, the Corinthian church was filled with people who considered their rhetoric abilities, their abilities to communicate as the most important virtue. In fact, uh, uh, the city of Corinth had a, a theater that ho- held about 20,000 people. Now, we're talking in 2,000 years ago, right? In the first century AD, they had built a theater, and they just filled that place up to watch shows or theaters, plays, and to hear orators to come in there and just explain different ideas. And so that was what they they claimed to be one of the greatest virtues. I mean, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, where Paul says, where where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And they would have known what he's talking about. We we may not understand what it is. We We might say this, but he's writing this to the Corinthians. He's like, where are those people that are wise and they, their rhetorical abilities are, are wisdom? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And again, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, And my speech and my message, talking about his message and his speech, were not in plausible words. Unlike the Corinthians, who are so hung up on plausible words and wisdom, his speech was not the same way. Now we we can go to Second Corinthians chapter ten verse ten, where he talks about the super apostles who say, "Oh, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account, because they consider speech to be a great value and virtue." This are the people that Paul is talking to. Paul is talking to people that thought. The way that they articulated and the way that they talked about it, the way that, like, if they talked a good game, that's what made them important. 
people in Corinth also considered their intellect and their religious affiliations as their most important virtue. First Corinthians 2 and 5 says this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So there is wisdom that people rested on. The wisdom of men people rested on. Let no one deceive himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So he's talking to these people as if they were really considering the wisdom of this world and their, their intellectual abilities, how smart they are, how well they can process information, what school they graduated from, who the teacher is, and all of those things. That, that's what they thought was the virtue. Thirdly, he's also talking to people who consider their material possessions and how they use it was the most important virtue. They were so stuck on the material realm. They were so carnal. Paul says this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They were so stuck on the material realm that tell me something good now. What... What is it going to do for me now in this world? That's what they were stuck on. This is the context to which Paul brings this message to them. I will show you a more excellent way. Now, does that make sense now to you, by the way, that, that they would start arguing about, oh, apostle, being an apostle is greater than being a prophet. Oh, but speaking in tongues is actually more, more, more greater than, than this. Oh, if, oh, no, I have a gift of healing. You see, you can't heal anybody. See, I can touch this guy, and then he's lame, and then now all of a sudden he can walk. Oh, I can, oh, no, man, like I can go and talk to a Chinese person in Mandarin like, like nobody's, nobody's business. And then I can turn around and talk to somebody in Swahili within the same breath. See, you can't do that. And they're, they're fighting because they're so focused in those charismatic gifts. Oh, no, nah, you can't write a, a, a three-point sermon. You don't know the Greek like that. You don't know how to parse phrases and stuff like that. I'm so smart. I went to this school. Nah, man, you went to uh, community college. What are you talking about? I went to Harvard. Uh, this division, they're biting and tearing each other up. This is the context to which Paul writes and says, I will show you a more excellent way. Then he lays into them the spiritual reality. First thing he says is this in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, no matter my ability in, of communication as a Christian, no matter the ability of a Christian in communication, whether he's able to, to talk to any person in any language fluently, or whether he's able to articulate an idea in a way that just... You ever met somebody like that? Like he, They can take a very complex idea and just break it down and like spoon-feed it to you. Like, wow, I didn't... You probably have teachers like that if you don't. 
I, I pray that God gives you one, right? Like they just break this idea and like, oh, wow, I've never seen it that way. They know how to communicate. They, they're so charismatic in the way that they speak. And they, 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 just, they just have an, an ability, a unique ability to kind of just grasp your attention by the way that they speak. I think our um, society calls them influencers. Right? Social media influencers. Paul says, no matter your ability to communicate and to articulate ideas in any language, even if they could speak a language only angels could speak. By the way, the... <laughs> Paul is just using a hyperbole here. You guys know what a hyperbole is? Like he's just like, exactly. He's using a hyperbole in his description. He's not teaching a doctrine of like angelic languages. I just want to lay that out there. He's not teaching that there is such a thing that he called an angelic language. That's not his intention here. He's being hyperbolic, and you can see you can see that if if you if you go down to with with me to verse two. <laughs> if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, honestly though, like who can understand all mysteries? Who can have all power? Can any human have? all power, and all knowledge. We know that none of us can ever know about everything there is to know about everything. So the way that he's speaking is, in a, is he's, he's really being hyperbolic in his description. He's not teaching that. All faith has to move mountains, like literal mountains. I mean... Yeah, the Lord Jesus said this and, um, to his disciples. If you had faith as uh, small as a grain of, um, uh, of mustard seed, uh, you, can, you can tell this mountain, get up and move, and it will move. Yeah, but again, that's also hyperbolic. So Paul is not necessarily teaching that there is this angelic language that you and the angels, you and God can communicate. That's not what this passage is talking about. He's saying there is a a skill that people can have to be able to speak a language to one another, even if it's a language that only angels understand. He's He's just taking it. He's just being too extra, if you will, to make his point. As impressive as that skill may be, by the way, I, I looked up what is the most languages one person could speak. There was a person called Ziad Faiza um, in 1998, spoke 58 languages. That's the Guinness World um, um, Book of Records. 58 languages that this person spoke. I mean, that's, that's impressive, right? You would think if somebody spoke four languages... Or five languages. I mean, people are impressed by the fact that I speak two languages fluently, I think. (laughs) If that's impressive, Paul is saying, as impressive that might be to you, that ability is just simply misguided. 
It's just an aimless use of an instrument. Like the instrument that is supposed to bring about joy and harmony and delight to others. That's what he uses, right? The cymbal and the gong, they are musical instruments. I was so tempted, and I'm still tempted, please pray for me, to just pick up that guitar behind me and just start strumming away randomly. Or I stop banging on something. If we had a drum up here, I wanted to bang on the drum. Like the guitar and the drum and the piano and the keys, all of those things are there to be used appropriately. And if you are used appropriately, they can actually make good music for your enjoyment. So does the gong and, and the cymbal. These are musical instruments. But he says, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm being used aimlessly, misguided kind of usage. If love is not driving that train. Your articulation of the truth may in many languages. You can go and, and speak to somebody like our brother is going to do in, in Spanish. Like he just lands in Colombia and all of a sudden he has the ability to speak Spanish and preach the gospel in Spanish. That's the gift of tongues. He never learned it. He didn't speak it. He just, as soon as he lands, the Lord can, can do that. But if he doesn't do it from love, if love is not driving that speech, just the articulation of the truth, in many languages, unless it's motivated by love, will end up in a train wreck. It just becomes empty words and hurt emotions. And this is why we see people don't like Christians because they're so hurtful. Because they, they want to tell the truth and they, they know how to tell the truth, but they don't know how to do it because love is not driving them. What's driving them is to prove their point that they're saved and the other people are wretched. So they go out and they say, you're going to hell and, and you're doing this. And people would have an emotional reaction to that because love is not what's driving them. So if love is not there, you would end up in a train wreck. Just empty words, just talking a good game with no action. Or you end up with hurt emotions. Your confession of faith in Christ, unless it's fueled and motivated by love, To him and to one another, it's just hypocrisy. It's like being a Pharisee. Paul continues his argument here to show them a still more excellent way in terms of this driving force of their lives by saying that your ability to proclaim God's will to a culture, that's what prophetic powers are. Even if you possess specific knowledge about the inner workings and the secrets of God's plan, that's what means by understand all mysteries, like the inner working. If you knew what God is going to do to your life tomorrow and to, to my life the next day and to somebody else's in the church, like, wouldn't you want to have that? Honestly, I wouldn't because that would stress me out. Because if I, knew, if I knew what sin I was going to fall into, or if I knew what blessings was coming to me, I would either like just be so trapped in despair 
and feel so helpless or I'll just be so lazy and not even do the things that I was supposed to be doing. But Paul says, even if you knew the secrets of God's plan, all of them, by the way, not just one or two, all of them, again, speaking hyperbolically, right? This is hyperbole. Because he knows, I mean, his readers would know, we know that we cannot know the secret things of God because God's word in Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us the secret things belong to God. We only know what he has revealed to us. So it's not a contradiction, but he's saying, even if you did know, you possess that specific knowledge, even if you had the unique ability to apply it, the, the wisdom to actually live a perfect biblical life and apply it to life situations, even if you had such confidence and reliance on God's ability to the point that you are able to make great things disappear or make great impact in your environment. That's what he's saying in verse 2. Even if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, even if you did that, even if I had those powers, as impressive, I admit, you got to admit, those powers are really impressive. And we should, by the way, earnestly desire them. I'm not saying, I'm not going against what God's word is saying. He said, earnestly desire these things, but there is such a more excellent, as I still show you a more excellent way. There's a higher gift than that. As great of an impact you may bring about in the culture, as great of an influencer you might be, as many followers you may gain because of your expertise in the situation. If love is not the driving force, look at what he says. First, he says, I'm a, useful in, I'm a useless instrument in terms of what I do. That's what verse 1 says. Verse 2, he talks about his identity. He says, I am nothing. I have no value. I bring nothing to the table. If love is not the driving force, and you have no value. You don't add to anything. It's a zero-sum game. Of, if a strong affection based on a high regard and appreciation towards God and towards mankind, it's what love is. An affection based on a high regard and appreciation towards God and towards your neighbor. If that's not what you're driving, that was driving your love train of your life, your whole life, and everything that you do, your whole work is summed up to be nothing. Lastly, Paul says, my ability to exercise charitable donations. Look down to verse 3. If I give away all I have. If I'm such a giving person, I just, I see everybody, I just give, 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 give all I have. If I dole out every material possession 
that I have and even become a martyr. I give myself up to be burned. If I do it for any other reason than love, if I do it for any other reason than as an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action, if I do it for any other reason than love, as love is defined in verses 4 through 7 for us, I'm sorry, um, verses 4 through 8 for us. If I do it for any other reason than that, then every prophets mean nothing. That's what he says. I'm a useless instrument. I'm, I have no value in, inherently if love is not there. And I'll gain no profit from everything that I try to do if love is not there. If love is not that engine, there's no profit from giving my possessions or my life if I'm not doing it from love. In fact, we might just be doing it so that we can show off. You ever met people that would, that would just boast about what they did? So that you can think of them as good people. That's motivation is not love. What profit do they get? What is their return on that investment? It's nothing. If you don't do it from love. I want to show us a couple of practical implications. And... And, and finish really three practical implications that I want us to consider together about love being the driving force of your life. One, this love that we're talking about is not some self-attained virtue. Like you don't work it out. Like you don't build your own love train and jump on it and then drive it yourself. None of it comes from you. It is a result of a transformed life filled with the Spirit of God. This love is a result of God saving you and filling you with His Spirit through Christ Jesus. Not your own works. You don't work out this love by yourself. You don't attain it by yourself. It is a gift from God. It's a result of a transformed life. Secondly, lack of this love in your life as a driving force of your life calls into question whether or not you know God or not. It calls into question the presence of the Spirit in your life. And I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean if you feel like an emotional coldness or if you're going through a season of struggle and, and there's like a seasonal dullness about, about like the, the, the affection towards God and towards others. I don't mean those like sporadic 
times that you feel that way. I mean, like if, you're, if your life is marked by a lack of love towards God and towards your brother and towards your neighbor, then it calls into question, first and foremost, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Are, then you may not even know God. And I'm not just pulling it out of thin air. We read this in our scripture reading, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That's what it says. Anyone who does not love God, who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's harsh, isn't it? I mean, this is God's word, though. This is what God says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. It's really clear. If we're not loving one another, if we're not showing that, 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 that affection towards one another, if love is not the driving force for our lives, how can we say we love God? So if there's a lack of that kind of love that we've been talking about thus far in our lives, then it calls the question, are you even saved? Is the Holy Spirit even working in your life? Something practical to consider. Lastly, this love which motivates you to be a doer, which motivates us to not just be hearers, and, and not just in an abstract way, this is not just an abstract principle that we are talking about. This is not just an ideology of love that I'm kind of just putting out there from, from the scriptures. It's not just a thing. It's, love is not just an inanimate object for us, practically. Love is a person. It's embodied and manifest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So if you want to have love be the driving force of your life, cling to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Call out to Jesus. It's not just love that we're calling to. Like we're not talking about some nonsense talking about love is love. No, God is love and God is a personal being. Like we have an object of what love is. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He had manifested his love to us by coming and dying for our sins, taking on our sins and transgressions, and then giving his righteousness to us, and then giving us eternal life. And if we have Jesus, we have love. So make love, friends, that flows from the Father through the Son 
by the Spirit, your only and primary driver of your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for being the source of love. You are such an amazing, wonderful, awesome Father who has loved His Son in eternity and worked out this love by the power of Your Spirit even before the world was created. Father, thank You for making us objects of Your love. Thank you for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to behold this wonderful truth. The depth of your love. Lord, continue to work that out by the power of your spirit in our lives. Make it our only motivation for all of our lives, for all of our faith, and for all that we do and we say and we believe, O oh God. Help us cling to your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us continue to love you and consider your love as we love one another. Let your love overflow from us even to those who have not heard of the gospel. We trust that you have blessed us with your presence here today. You have heard our prayer because you love us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.